Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Anticipation was killing the boy. He'd made his proposal. Now he just had to wait for the founder's response. Finally, the old man cleared his throat and answered, No, marriages were arranged here. Requests to marry a specific girl had to be denied. But the boy protested. His conviction surprised the founder, who for a moment saw himself in the child. He decided to let the kid in on a secret. He told him that a short list of suitable wives had been prepared. His crush's name was on the list. Grateful, the young man turned to go, but when he reached the door, he paused. He did have one concern. He confessed that when his girl was near, his genitals would get sore. Lately, the soreness wouldn't go away. He was in anguish. The founder placed a comforting hand on the boy's shoulder and told him that soreness was common. It wouldn't be a concern once the boy took a wife. But just in case, the founder said, they'd better take a look. Then he unbuckled the child's belt and examined him. At first, his scrutiny felt clinical, but then it changed, becoming something perverse. The old man masturbated the boy. Frozen, the boy wondered what was happening, especially because the founder was also his father, Neville Cooper. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week, in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into the Gloria Vale Christian community. Founded in New Zealand in 1969, Gloria Vale's leader, Neville Cooper, imposed rigid rules, including strict gender norms. The women of the community were to be submissive, while the men led with an iron fist. Despite these retrograde gender roles, the members of the sect were largely do-gooders who had the community's best interests at heart. But their leader, Neville Cooper, was a tyrannical sexual deviant who cultivated a climate of fear and distress. Next, we'll put Neville Cooper under the microscope. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Neville Cooper was born in Australia in 1926. Short in stature, he showed real promise on the rugby field, but his life was more about work than fun. In 1938, 12-year-old Neville was pulled from school to work at his father's fruit stand. Outside of this paternal demand, we do know, however, that at 16, Neville's father kicked him out with no explanation and cut off all contact. Then, Neville found out that his uncle had been killed in the Second World War. It's possible these major blows at such a young age sparked a trail of chronic loss, also known as an ongoing pattern of uncontrollable life experiences. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to social psychologist Claudia Black, when children are raised with chronic loss, it's most natural for them to internalize incredible fear. Not receiving the necessary psychological or physical protection equals abandonment, and living with repeated abandonment experiences creates toxic shame. Shame arises from the painful message implied in abandonment. You are not important. You are not of value. Neville converted to Christianity in the late 1940s, at around age 21. It's unclear why he felt compelled to suddenly embrace religion, but perhaps in the light of his father's abandonment, he sought a more benevolent, patriarchal figure in God. The more he studied the Bible, the more Neville discovered a sense of worth. He soon became addicted to his faith, believing that the Holy Father wouldn't ever reject him the way his own father had. It wasn't long before Neville became a regular at church, but that's where he met 16-year-old Gloria. Kind and reserved, Gloria was taken with Neville's charisma. To her, his personality was a shield she could hide behind. Gloria allowed him to pontificate about Christianity and encouraged him to keep learning about his new faith. Her compliant, God-fearing nature endeared her to Neville. Therefore, it's no surprise that the couple got married Soon after their nuptials, Gloria became pregnant. Both she and Neville felt utterly blessed. However, more babies quickly followed, and Neville knew he needed an income. So he started to make his way around Australia as an evangelical preacher. Even during his early sermons, Neville was captivating. He was such a compelling preacher that one couldn't help but get whisked away by the force of his faith. In every service, Neville touted his main aim. He longed to purge humanity of its sin. He felt that the best way to achieve this goal was to establish a sin-free utopia on Earth, a place in which the Heavenly Father was put first by everyone. 
However, Neville didn't have the funds to build such a place himself, so he continued traveling to local churches throughout Australia, preaching his gospel. His frequent trips meant that he rarely saw his family. This often left Gloria tending to the large brood of children by herself. She never complained. She believed, as Neville preached, that a woman should submit her will without question to God and to her husband. Despite their staunch faith, the young family's life was far from perfect. They moved often. Every time Neville was invited to preach at a faraway church, he would relocate his entire family to the new locale. However, Neville was so bullheaded that he would immediately begin trying to force his beliefs on his new host church. This led him to being kicked out of churches again and again, just as he'd been thrown out of his father's house. This could have been why, when Neville was home, his temper was formidable. He was said to literally try and beat the devil from his sons, often battering them with a rubber hose. His behavior was likely caused by his past contentious relationship with his father. Though not much has been written about this man, what we do know suggests he was a strict disciplinarian. Neville didn't know any other way to relate to his sons, so he followed in his dad's footsteps. It didn't matter if the boys had done wrong. He looked for reasons to tear into them. He knew fear would make them obey. And if they heeded him, he could put them to work, just as his father had done with him. In the summer of 1959, 33-year-old Neville converted an old bus into a mobile home. This allowed the family to stay together while Neville toured the country's churches. But that winter, the result of Neville's hard work became the site of disaster. The family had a beloved pet, a tiny rabbit. The little guy was hopping about the bus entertaining the children when it bumped into the kerosene heater. The kerosene spilled and the pet caught fire. It tore through the bus, frantic to end its torture. Wherever it went, fire spread. Without warning, the bus went up in a blaze. Though the Coopers made it out alive, all their belongings and shelter were lost. Distraught, the now transient family prayed for help. They were saved by a church just north of Brisbane. The pastor there heard what happened and wanted to lend a hand. He offered the family housing in exchange for Neville's work. Despite the much-needed help, Neville likely couldn't stop himself from pushing his philosophies on the generous pastor. Yet again, under mysterious circumstances, he was ordered to leave. This last rejection was followed by months of continued travel to new churches, which only led to the same result. Eventually, Neville vowed to never rely on the charity of host churches. Instead, he would branch out on his own. By the mid-1960s, Neville focused on reaching an audience of Australians living in remote areas that didn't have a home church. He gave public sermons all across the country about his utopian vision of a society that always put God first. In his tent revivals, without a competing cleric to challenge his views, Neville received an incredible response. Devotees journeyed through the bush just to hear him preach. He was Australia's Billy Graham, a charismatic crusader for God. 
Naturally, Neville's ministry grew. By 1967, his following was big enough that 41-year-old Neville was asked to come preach in New Zealand. With the goal of his Christian utopia in mind, he and his wife boarded a ship with their nine children and set off. The family eventually settled in the town of Rangiora in New Zealand's South Island. Slowly, Neville recruited inhabitants for his society. He enticed them by preaching that he'd show followers the real way to live godly lives. This vision of a community meant to serve God appealed to some locals. They joined Neville's mission. Together, he and his congregants, who began to be known as the Cooperites, began doing good works for those in need. They believed that it was their duty as Christians to help others, and that this was the best way to gain local support for the establishment of their utopia. They fixed up broken cars and handed them out to those less fortunate. They cultivated community gardens and taught residents how to farm. Due to these efforts, the surrounding community initially valued their new neighbors. Thus, they too joined Neville's cause. Once they were official Cooperites, they handed over their incomes to him. Some even went further. They sold their land, their houses, and contributed all of their combined assets to Neville. And Neville took all of it as his due. He refused to apply for bank loans, insisting that his new utopia be entirely funded by the faithful. But money wasn't the only thing Neville required. To fulfill his vision, his female followers also had to launder clothes, clean their homestead, and cook meals. His male followers built shared lodging and gathering spots and labored on the farm, working nights and weekends. Once the communal hostels were built, each family was assigned their own bedrooms and a shared recreational lounge and a bathroom. As for unmarried young men and women, they were relegated to same-sex dormitories. However, their single status wasn't a life sentence. On the contrary, Neville encouraged very early marriage among these unattached members. He claimed it was the only way they could handle the sexual impulses bestowed on them by God. There was just one catch. Neville had to approve every single marital union. Without his consent, the young single people in his utopia were doomed to remain alone. Next, Neville Cooper preys on adolescent Cooperites, including his own children. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1978, 52-year-old Neville Cooper's commune in New Zealand was growing. Fundamentalist Christian theology dictated everyday life. As a result, men controlled everything in the name of God, and women submitted their wills to their husbands, fathers, and sons. It was an austere life, but the shared dogma fostered a sense of unity, and Neville promised his community that they'd be cared for. No more struggling to find childcare or scrambling to put food on the table. 
In a way, followers were promised rescue from life's stresses. For this, they were grateful. They felt chosen. In Sins of the Father, a book about the cult, based on the experiences of Neville's son, author Fleur Beale writes, there was a sense that they were building a Christian island in a godless world. However, this perception of their surrounding neighbors as godless ultimately bled into their interactions with outsiders. And though the group continued doing good works in the community, their acts of charity were tinged with condescension. Soon, they wore out their welcome. Perhaps it was the growing local distaste for his Cooperites that caused Neville to sever ties between his members and the outside world in 1978. From then on, they were on their own. Neville believed Jesus chose him to prepare his community for the second coming. Thus, he couldn't abide earthly distractions. However, he did feel that even leaders needed to help. So he put together a band of shepherds comprised of 12 to 16 elder Cooperite men. Neville decided that they would help him advise followers, run the Cooperite schools, and arrange marriages. They weren't all powerful, however. Neville largely managed the church's tax-free charitable trust, the sect's business ventures, and member assets. As for Neville, he remained the overseeing shepherd. In this way, Neville placed himself at the very top of the theocratic food chain. Cooperite men might have been subservient to Neville, but they had absolute power over their wives and daughters. Though female Cooperites were permitted to read the Bible, they could never preach. Only Neville and his men could lead the flock to salvation. However, the obstacles to salvation were plentiful. Neville preached that sinners would be locked out of heaven, birth control was a sin, divorce an abomination, sex before marriage damnable, and homosexuality vile. He insisted that these rules would keep his congregants pure in Christ's eyes, saving them from an evil, wicked world. During group dinners, Neville recited news articles validating his claims of a hateful world. Cooperite children grew up listening to tales of murder and depravity. These horrendous stories made them afraid of the outside. In addition to supplementing their schooling with his lectures, Neville dictated how the children in his community were raised. For example, if a child wet his bed, Neville insisted they be thrown into a freezing shower or be made to stand on a platform with their backs to the entire community during the following meal. This tactic reminded the punished that the public knew their shame. But that wasn't the worst of it. In some cases, children were openly beaten. Usually they were singled out when they least expected it and smacked and whipped in front of their peers. Dr. Phil Leesk, a researcher and author, writes in an article on humiliation that unpredictability reinforces the power of the humiliator and inculcates a fear of humiliation, which is powerful in itself. Nobody was safe from Neville's humiliating tactics, not even his own children. This was evident when Neville's teenage son, Phil, ran away. He wasn't gone long, but when he returned, he showed off a new digital wristwatch. Worldly objects were prohibited, so Neville called an emergency meeting with all the men in the congregation, about 30 in total. 
they decided to lay in wait for Phil. When he entered, the men blockaded the exits. Then, Neville launched into an hours-long tirade, verbally berating his son. When it was clear he wasn't getting through, Neville took his child's prized possession and said, You are no longer my son. I wish you'd never been born. With that, he smashed the new wristwatch to smithereens. Shortly after, Faith, Neville's oldest daughter, left Springbank with her husband and kids. Neville promptly made an example of her. The preacher warned that runaways would not bear any more children, and anyone who left the commune was evil. Their marriages would disintegrate, and their lives would be full of pain and suffering. This rhetoric reinforced the hold Neville had over his followers. Without him, they believed they'd be lost. They felt they needed to heed his counseling in all things, especially when it came to the important decision of marriage. In 1980, Neville's son, 18-year-old Phil, had his heart set on a young Cooperite girl named Sandy. He decided to ask his father for her hand. The boy practiced his plea outside Neville's office. Though he knew marriages were arranged, Phil was sure that God wanted him to be with Sandy. With clammy hands, he opened the door to greet his father. On expressing his desires, Neville subjected him to a barrage of questions, asking what kind of husband he intended to be. After the debacle with the watch, Phil delighted in what he perceived as a positive, bonding father-son moment. He answered Neville's questions to the best of his ability. Then Neville gave him wonderful news. He would speak to Sandy on his behalf and then offer his permission. Over the moon, Phil shook his father's hand and went to exit. But when he got to the door, he paused. Nervous, Phil turned and explained that when he saw Sandy, his groin ached. As of late, the ache wasn't going away. It hurt bad. Neville assured his son that the throbbing would pass once he was married. But just to be safe, he asked Phil to show him his genitals anyway. Hesitant, the teenager complied. Then, Neville reached down and blithely began to masturbate his own child. This deviant act was just the beginning. Neville soon began to exhibit similarly abusive behaviors towards the other young members of his community. Neville's predation had innocent origins. Young married couples came to him because they wanted to incorporate godliness into their lovemaking. Perhaps initially, Neville truly desired to help them with their intimacy concerns. However, Neville eventually began encouraging couples to engage in sex acts in front of him. At Neville's prompting, they showed up with blankets and lay down before him. While he would offer some legitimate assistance, the entire exercise was largely for his own voyeuristic gratification. Before long, Neville wasn't content to abuse his flock alone, so he invited his fellow shepherds to join his predation. Neville began inviting unmarried teenage Cooperite girls to join him and his shepherds at the hot tub. Perhaps he was trying to implicate his fellow elders so they couldn't curtail his behavior. Whatever his reasons, the men were game. The young women, however, trembled upon being called to the cult leader's spa. Once there, they were required to disrobe. The shepherds removed their clothing too. Throughout the lecherous soak, 
pornographic films were projected on the walls. Though the encounters were traumatic for the young Cooperite girls, no one stopped the spa sessions. This may have been because the women in the community were conditioned to always defer to men. This might also explain why, although Neville's wife, Gloria, knew about the abusive get-togethers, she said nothing. The silence of the community emboldened Neville. He began brazenly handpicking young Cooperite women to accompany him to his bedroom, alone. 16-year-old Yvette Olson was one such girl. In 1981, she spotted Tim, a cute 14-year-old who worked on the cattle ranch. After making shy contact, the kids found hiding spots far from the Cooperite dormitories. Alone, they'd hang out, talk about their siblings, and play cards. Though their interactions were innocent, they kept them a secret. Boys and girls were not allowed to be friends until their marriages were arranged. The young pair knew that if they were discovered, they'd be severely punished. In secret, Yvette and Tim grew closer. Then, like many star-crossed young couples before them, they decided they had to be together, whatever the consequences. The pair ran away from Springbank, but didn't get very far. Neville found them and made them get married. But once the young couple returned home, they were forced to hide their union from the community. A few days later, Neville summoned Yvette. Yvette had never been alone with the founder. Her heart beat in triplicate as Neville castigated her. He demanded she beg for forgiveness and declare herself a harlot. Yvette complied. When she returned to her room, she was broken. Over the next two years, Yvette and Tim were forced to avoid one another. Though they were married, they weren't allowed to live together or tell anyone about their union. Then in 1984, 19-year-old Yvette and 17-year-old Tim received an invitation. 58-year-old Neville offered the secret couple marital counsel. He told them they could attend a session together. But first, they each needed to visit Neville alone. Yvette went first. When she entered the founder's bedroom as prompted, his wife Gloria was nowhere to be found, and there were no other shepherds either. Abruptly, Neville ordered Yvette to lie down on the bed and lift her skirt to her belly. She did so without question. Next, Neville grabbed a jar of oil from his bedside table. In it was a wooden rod. His voice soft, Neville said, if you don't do this, you will not be allowed to be with Tim. Despairing, Yvette promised to do anything to be with her love. Then the founder told her that he'd measured her husband and the oil-soaked rod had been fashioned to his exact dimensions. He then raped Yvette with the instrument. She tried to break away, but Neville held her against the mattress. Silently, she endured his abuse. Neville repeated this same horrific violation the following two days. Then, in the same abrupt manner with which it had begun, Neville stopped the abusive encounters. As promised, he allowed Yvette to live with her husband. Within a year, the couple fled the community with their newborn daughter. Yvette would not allow her child to experience anything close to the trauma she survived. 
Neville didn't worry very much about Yvette and Tim's desertion. If he lost control over a member or two, there was always another Cooperite to dominate. And if he felt a particular need to reassert his power, he always had his family. Not long after his son married, Neville invited him and his new daughter-in-law, Sandy, over for dinner. Phil accepted because he had to, and he was eager for time with his mother, who he deeply loved. He had heard, however, that these date nights often evolved into something else. When dinner ended, Neville asked his family to join him in the bedroom. In Neville's quarters, Phil was told to turn down the bed. Next, his father asked him to lie beside Gloria. There was no way to refuse. Neville was the father, and by Cooperite law, there was no disobeying him. So, Phil lay down next to his mother. He couldn't see her eyes, but he heard her breathing. Gloria was deeply unsettled. With his wife and son out of the way, Neville asked Sandy to stand in the center of the room. Overwrought, she waited for her husband to object. When he didn't, she froze. The next thing she knew, she was being undressed by her father-in-law. He peered at her, moving his leathery hand from her cheek to her neck to her chest. Sandy went dead inside. Phil lay next to his mother, paralyzed too. After suffering this intrafamilial abuse, the young couple felt broken. Sandy wondered how Phil could let this happen to her. Phil wondered the same thing. Sadly, the occasion was only the beginning. Sandy and Phil were called over regularly to suffer this joint molestation. Finally, after the couple produced five children and struggled under Neville's control, Phil had had enough. He decided it was time to leave the community, but Sandy refused. She feared that her soul wouldn't be saved if she fled. So in November of 1989, Phil collected their children and snuck away. He would spend over a decade trying to reunite the kids with their mother, but she wanted to obey Neville and serve God. She wanted to stay. When asked about the incident, Phil said, if that hadn't happened to Sandy, she'd still be with me today. It broke her spirit. Dad took the husband's role out of my hands. He got off on that and then had sex with mom. Phil turned his back on the Cooperites in 1989, certain that his father would face no consequences for his crimes. But Phil was wrong. Up next, Neville Cooper is taken to trial on 11 counts of sexual violation. Now, back to the story. Fundamentalist preacher Neville Cooper founded a utopian Christian sect in the late 1960s, but he had a penchant for abusing his followers, violently and sexually. Still, the sect operated without interruption. It grew self-sufficient, and by the 1980s, business was booming. With his followers' funds, Neville purchased several companies that provided the following services, according to the Gloria Vale website. Drain laying, building, plumbing, painting, floor laying, and aircraft engineering. His followers also added to his coffers by selling garden produce, willow cane for basket making, and dairy products. Towards the end of the 1980s, it became clear that the community's many business ventures needed more room. 
So in 1991, 65-year-old Neville purchased an over 2,000-acre farm on the west coast of the South Island for his colony. The congregation loved the new land and were eager to move. But just as they started to set up camp, Neville's wife, Gloria, began experiencing painful headaches. She tried to relieve her suffering with prayer, but it didn't help. A visit to the doctor revealed a large tumor in her brain. Months later, 57-year-old Gloria died. Neville refused to let his children, who had left the sect, attend their mother's funeral. In his wife's honor, however, he called his new community's compound Gloria Vale. He also formally changed his own name from Neville Cooper to Hopeful Christian. From here on out, Greg and I will refer to Neville as Hopeful Christian. Decades before, Hopeful Christian had preached that if a shepherd's wife should pass, the man would remain chaste. He stated that celibacy was an honorable way for husbands to pay tribute to wives until their reunion in heaven. But once it came time for Hopeful Christian to practice what he preached, he balked. Instead, Hopeful told the sect that remaining single was an antiquated notion. Within months of his wife's death, he was remarried. Hopeful Christian's new wife was an elderly widow. At the time, she seemed to be a good companion. She understood Hopeful's grief, having lost her own mate. But then, within two years of their wedding, she too passed away. In 1993, 67-year-old Hopeful got remarried again. This time he opted for a younger wife, much younger. His new spouse was only 17 years old. She bore him children in quick succession. Hopeful likely felt great. He had a new, young, fertile wife. Business was booming, and his control over his followers extended to the names they gave their children. From then on, babies born at Gloria Vale were given righteous, biblical names. Some of these include Paradise Courage, Merciful Disciple, Vigilant Standfast, Meek Hopeful, and Obedience Stand True. In that way, it was clear that Hopeful's word on baby names and everything else in Gloria Vale was absolute. And then in 1994, several estranged Cooperites filed claims against him. Two of the complainants were Yvette Olson, who Hopeful had abused with a wooden rod, and Phil Cooper, who finally decided to speak against his father for molesting him and his wife. In December of 1995, Hopeful Christian was taken to the Christchurch courts. After decades of escaping consequences, he stood trial for 11 counts of indecent assault. For the victims, the case was agonizing. Hopeful's lawyers were ruthless, demanding such details as the founder's facial expressions during his abusive sex acts. Defenders even asked Phil which hand his father used to grope him. According to Fleur Beale's book, Phil retorted, Ask him. He's the one who knew. Despite Phil's spirited testimony, Hopeful denied committing any violation ever. There was no indication he had the slightest intention or even the capability to reform. Thus, the jury issued a verdict of guilty, and Hopeful Christian was sentenced to five years in prison. When the members of Gloria Vale were made aware of their founder's incarceration, they were lied to about the reasons behind it. 
The presiding shepherd stated that their leader had been unjustly imprisoned for preaching. Due to these lies, Cooperites began seeing Hopeful as a sort of martyr. But a handful of members did learn the truth. When one such Cooperite questioned the elder's explanation, he was likely met with responses like, you're a liar, you're just accusing our leader. Then we can assume he was expelled from the church. This likely prevented any other skeptics from speaking up. Eleven months later, hopeful Christian was released from prison. He returned to Gloria Vale immediately after. There was no evidence that he had changed his behavior. Furthermore, his punishment at the hands of the law didn't dissuade his fellow shepherds from continuing their predatory practices. Instead, they seemed to escalate their behavior, even going as far as later admitting a convicted sex offender into the community. The predator lived among the sect after serving time for sexually assaulting a teenage boy. On May 15, 2018, 92-year-old Hopeful Christian passed away. However, the scandals at Gloria Vale didn't end with his death. In the years before and after his passing, there was a flurry of new allegations. These ranged from claims of sexual assault to charges of unsafe working conditions. In response, the local cops resolved to observe the sect on a regular basis to protect its members. Despite the police presence, the fundamentalist community thrived. The church's businesses grew, with assets adding up to over $40 million in 2016. For some members, however, the community's financial success didn't make up for its hypersexualized and violent environment. Thus, a slow drip exodus began. Hopeful's eldest daughter, Faith, collected these church refugees. She offered them support and helped reintegrate them into society. She believed that someone had to take responsibility for her father's injurious actions. There were other heroes, too. Faith's brother, Phil, shared his story in a tell-all book. And Yvette Olson spoke about her experience publicly to prevent the cult from attracting new members. Together, Yvette, Phil, Faith, and others like them tried to counteract Hopeful Christian's legacy. Their former leader had once expressed the desire to create a utopia free of sin. Instead, he had crafted a hellish prison rife with immorality. In the end, it was those who survived him who sought to build a better world than the one he'd left behind. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Neville Cooper, amongst the many sources we used, we found Sins of the Father, The Long Shadow of a Religious Cult by Fleur Beale, and Daughter of Gloria Vale, My Life in a Religious Cult by Lilia Tarawa. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>